AVXL episode 151 was recorded on August 27th, 2021. Samsung's got a magic remote TV brick lock thing. Sony's new 2000-nit TVs are getting tested. Dan Clark's just released a new stealth flagship headphone. New speakers from Polk. NAD's got some high-end sweetness. And we got some viewer questions for you. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly contributions make this show possible. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We've got so many things to talk about this week. Uh, jar, jar. <laughs> CD is falling apart. I don't want to insult yeah. anybody over at that organization, but to put it into context, there have been four shows we've been looking forward to, right? The idea was that the vaccines are out, people are scheduling shows. There's Cedia, which is the installer and home theater and audio. It's really for professional installation groups. Rocky Mountain Audio Fest, Axpona, which is similar to Rocky Mountain Audio Fest in terms of it's an enthusiast show, but I feel a little more high-end even than Rocky Mountain Audio Fest right. and Can Jam. So Cedia at its peak, one uh, website pointed out, at the biggest Cedia ever was like over 600 vendors. The smallest Cedia in the last decade was, say, 440 vendors or something like that. Uh, so, if, you know, four or 500 vendors is pretty typical for Cedia. They were going into this show with 240 exhibitors. You know, a week and a half ago, the four largest vendors, uh, which are the big controller companies like Crestron or Savant, and and, uh, they pulled out. And then a whole bunch of other vendors pulled out. And then they kind of hid the map because they had to redraw the map. Because I was looking at the map, and I was like, wow, the four biggest booths are empty, and a bunch of these are empty. And at this point, it's last I looked, it was about 100, 110 uh, exhibitors left over. Yikes. So the upside is that, for example, Sony's reached out because they want to talk about their announcements. Uh, Mantle Mount and a whole bunch of other companies have, have are, are doing remote announcements. But essentially, uh, there were great concerns, especially, I think, from, from folks coming from overseas about uh, Delta. So Axpona uh, outright has canceled their event until next year. They rescheduled it for next spring. Uh, Can Jam, the headphone festival in Southern California is still on. And Rocky Mountain Audio Fest sent out an email to potential exhibitors saying, hey, don't listen to anybody. We're doing this thing. So uh, we'll see. (laughs) We'll see what we actually got to see uh, somewhere around the middle of October. Well, let's hope CDIA's online presence can be similar, maybe, to what they were doing for Display Week a few months ago. Yeah. In terms of having it all online, at least the basic information, even if the vendors aren't going to be there, they should, I believe, still have a place to find all those press releases and info about the new products. I simply miss going to that show specifically for seeing some of the installation hardware right. that people have and the tips and tricks you can find for making things look really great. In addition to mm-hmm. just the education side of it, where I have taken training classes at CDS shows, and I miss all of that very, very much. And hopefully next year, I think I said this last year, but uh, hopefully next year. <laughs> <laughs> Delete expletive delta. Ugh. You have discovered, or you have read accounts, stories uh, about 
a heretofore unknown ability Samsung has to uh, remote lock or brick or block TVs. What's going on with that? It turns out that due to some of the recent unrest and turmoil that is plaguing South Africa right now, there have been large shipments, apparently, or warehouses that have been broken into, and large units of TVs have been taken to be redistributed as such. Because of this, Samsung actually posted a news alert saying that they have what they call the Samsung TV block, and that is really what it sounds like. The TV can be disconnected and bricked effectively if it is connected to the internet. They can do that through the serial numbers. If perchance you've ever had your Samsung TV actually outright stolen from you, it may be worth actually contacting Samsung and get your TV on that list if you happen to have recorded the serial number of your TV, which probably most people don't. But anyway, it really does seem like Samsung has this ability and it is directly related to when you first connect that TV to the internet. So, if you happen to find a Samsung TV that fell off the back of a truck, you may want to avoid connecting it to the internet. And what I'm most curious about is if something like a manual firmware update, where you actually download the file from the manufacturer, would brick a blacklisted TV. I kind of doubt it, where they're actually containing specific serial numbers and model series within the firmware itself in order to be able to accomplish that, but... I would not put it entirely out of the question in terms of that ability. These TVs have enough space within them in terms of storage where it wouldn't probably be hard to have, especially when you can narrow it down to specific regions or places, uh, have firmware that could actually brick the TV no matter how you get it, be it connecting it to the internet like most people do or for a manual firmware update where you download the file. It's just kind of interesting and it just shows that, yeah, uh, network connected TV, the internet TV. It is definitely uh, something the manufacturer keeps an eye on <laughs> and can do things to. <laughs> if so need be, they're watching. A reminder. Yeah, it's one of those things where this is a great way to discourage the theft of containers, um, you know, or, or organized crime assaulting your supply chain. <laughs> you want to steal our TVs? Fine. Good luck with that. Let us know how it works out. Quote, once connected, the serial number of the TV is identified on the Samsung server and the blocking system is implemented, disabling all the television functions. Hmm. Oops. (laughs) Oh, should a customer's TV be incorrectly blocked, the functionality can be reinstated once proof of purchase and a valid TV license is shared with a legitimate retailer. This is specific, really, uh, to the South African region, right. and they actually do provide a uh, an email contact if you uh, run into this situation and need to rectify it. There was a really big problem in San Francisco with phones getting stolen, uh, often involving uh, moderate amounts of assault um, until... You're describing my neighborhood uh, right now. <laughs> The general consensus, and this is probably seven years ago, but uh, uh, when they put the kill switch in, the remote kill switch in, um, at least in in San Francisco and I guess New York was where they were really tracking it, phone thefts dropped (laughs) precipitously. Plus, it's a device that's so easy to track. Yeah. As a potential would-be thief, you might want to consider that. (laughs) After the, well, yeah. Well, I'll put it this way. After the the kill switch was employed for Apple products, robberies and grand larcenies from a person involving Apple products dropped 19 and 29% in the first five months of 2014. 
and compared to the year earlier. In San Francisco, they dropped 38%. In London, they dropped 24%. Um, so those were, that was reported in the Wall Street Journal back in the day. So you're here for the kill switch. The other thing that was kind of crazy is we've been marveling at the occasional thousand plus nit television. We, you, you know, you wax, you know, in theory, the spec cries out for a 10,000 nit television is the sort of ideal amount of light output, which is a distant glimmer even in Sony's eye. Well, what's going on with the new Master Series TVs? We talked last week about how Value Electronics, the wonderful shop you can visit at valueelectronics.com, they got the very first shipment of the new Master Series Z9J for the U.S. market in stock. And what caught my attention initially were the very first numbers posted for this, perhaps a little too quickly before reviewing some of their work. They were initially claiming over 10,000 nits on this particular display for the Z9J. However, that was soon revised, I think, within like eight hours <laughs> to a more modest, say, 3,000 nit-ish peak in fully calibrated, beautiful-looking picture quality. These screens are available in a variety of sizes. Sony has right now the 75-inch available for a svelte $8,000. These are going to be some of the, the punchiest, brightest, most beautiful calibrated displays right out of the box. And it's just kind of cool. I really was hoping that maybe somebody this year would be breaking like the five or 6,000 nit range. And when I initially saw that 10,000 nit spec for the Z9J, I, mm -hmm. I had a moment of fandom. Uh, and I'm, uh, I was mildly disappointed <laughs> to see the revised numbers, but still... For a panel that big, 75 and 85 inches for the new Bravia XR Z9J 8K HDR, full array LED, smart Google TV. What does the 85 inch cost? Let's just see. Oh, a cool 10 grand. <laughs> and in order to compete with something like, say, an 83 inch OLED, what Sony has up their sleeve is that brightness output, that ability to hit 3000 nits peak plus on a fully micro LED backlit display that can do a very good job of maintaining local dimming in addition to just a beautiful contrast with the ability to punch up to something like three times what your typical OLED can do in terms of absolute light output. It's going to be a fantastic display. Their best LCD of 2021. So there you go. If you need it and you want it, <laughs> it's available. It is not 10,000 nits. But it's a solid 3,000. and I'll, uh, It's getting closer. Yeah, they're saving that magic. We have seen, and Sony has shown off, prototypes of 4K 10,000 TV systems before. Right. We await the day those become consumer available. <laughs> With bated breath. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Dan Clark Audio, uh, they make the Aeons, uh, some of my favorite headphones of all time. They have a new flagship planar magnetic. That's essentially the, the technology employed by the majority of their headphones, except for the Vache Electrostatics. 
These are an interesting idea. I've been a big fan of their closed back headphones. They are particularly impressive. And this is a new flagship closed back headphone. And they're using a metamaterial or what they call the acoustic metamaterial tuning system, which dampens frequencies coming out of the back of the driver before they hit the cup and get perhaps reflected back into the driver into your ears. And the idea is, is similar to Kef's LS50. Uh, well, I just said it. They eliminate the sound coming from the back of the driver and impacting with the case and blah, 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 blah. It was interesting. Audio Science Review got an early look at those and uh, tested them. They said it was literally about the perfect Harman curve, uh, which essentially means it's got more bass than the Aeon Aeon 2, uh, or what I'd think of as the standard uh, Dan Clark tuning. I'm going to talk about the Harman curve and a significantly more affordable set of Harman curve tuned headphones next week. But uh, I just want to give a shout out for Dan Clark Audio because I've I've enjoyed just about every he- I, period. I don't think I've ever heard a bad headphone from Dan Clark, and I'm not sure I can say that about any other company. Um, those are going to be shipping August 23rd, and they are the most expensive headphone he's ever made. The the Vache Electrostatic runs $3,300, uh, not including an appropriate amp to drive it. Now to put that into perspective, uh, there are significantly there are many many significantly more expensive electrostatic headphones out there uh in fact almost all of them are the stealth uh which is again a planar magnetic headphone you probably will want a a discrete uh amp and dac to drive there at least a discrete amp to drive that uh, because it is going to be a bit of a load those are going to sell for 39.99 for a pair hope to hear them at can jam socal and uh, very very curious to see uh, and learn a little bit more about the metamaterial tuning system they put into that. Because that's, that, that's, uh, I, I'm curious. They look Can't gorgeous. Hear them. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, usually we look at, at Dan Clark as delivering flagship performance for a significantly lower price. And this is them showing what they can do when they spend all the money. If you are buying planar magnetic headphones, are you automatically mm-hmm. buying a, a beefier amp? Or a special amp? No. Or can you pretty much drive those with even like some of the best affordable amps we've seen or DACs? Well, DAC amps. so what's kind of crazy, and, and you know, I, I, I live like 35 minutes from JDS Labs facility now. I've been using um, a JDS Labs Element 2, uh, which is a combined headphone and DAC with a giant knob on it. And I love giant knobs. Um, Indeed. I will not lie. But their uh, Adamant Plus, which sells for $100, uh, is measures incredibly well and is going to compete with just about anything else out there. There are a lot of $100 or $200 headphone amps that will have more than enough power and clean power to drive these headphones. Cool. I sometimes mix these up with electrostatics, and that's where typically you have a specialized amp for those type of headphones yeah there are like 400 adapters that will convert the output from a traditional headphone amp into something that will drive electrostatics electrostatic amps are fairly rarefied and not particularly common and right. it's more typical you know it's easy to spend two or three or four thousand dollars on one of those in fact i'm not entirely sure if but I've if it's in the budget a planar magnetic like the stealth uh is something yeah. anyone could add to their current gear setup and at least you know take it from there you don't need to immediately yeah. jump right out and buy a specialized no. amp for something like this cool it really depends on the planar magnetic some of them some of Got them it. you know 
some of them uh some of them, them benefit from a little extra others yeah <laughs> but a lot general, of them do, no. but not all nice. of them so cool uh shifting gears a little bit uh polk announced a couple of additions to their speaker lineup the monitor xt and the signature elite so when you look at polk and I want to say Wirecutter picked uh, some of Polk's entry-level speakers as their pick for home theater speakers. They traditionally de- de- deliver a lot of value. Um, and it's funny because when you work your way down from their flagship down, it's the Legend, the Reserve, the Signature Elite, the Monitor XT, kind of the top four on their lineup. And uh, as I look at this... The Legend Reserve, the Signature Elite, the Signature, the Monitor XT, the T-Series, the Monitor, the HTS, and the PSW. But the Legend Series, their flagship, you know, you're talking about like $1,000, $1,500 a pair for a set of bookshelf speakers, $1,500 a pair for the bookshelf speakers. And the Legend L800, which is this massive uh, floor-standing tower, they sell for $3,000 each. The Reserve Series is uh, the next highest on their lineup, and, and those are still fairly spendy. You're looking about $700 a pair for the bookshelf speakers, about $1,000 each for the R700s. We've seen that price territory by some uh, ELAC's more expensive stuff. The Signature Elite, it's 550 bucks for the tower, the biggest tower they make, and then a set of bookshelf speakers are selling for about $400 a pair. I'm really, really curious to hear these because Polk's uh, pretty good about doing some fantastic engineering at a price point. The Monitor XT, which is the other new lineup they announced um that's 300 dollars each for a floor stander and a pair of bookshelf speakers is selling for about 249 dollars. and again i'm very very curious to hear what these sound like for the money those so, are good prices on the monitor yeah. xt series i like everything i'm looking at there they have it all even some up firing speakers you can throw on top for dolby atmos yeah slash dtsx <laughs> <laughs> Not in my basement. If your ceiling is compatible. Yeah, exactly. But no, so, I mean, for the price point, you could do, like, say, well under $2,000 for yeah. a 5.1 setup with a very nice... They have a couple of center channel options and the bookshelf styles. They have good options at a couple price points across the entire series. And it doesn't cost a fortune if you go down that route. Tempting. Yeah, especially like that uh, Signature Elite series. I think they've done some interesting stuff with the cabinet bracing, the cabinet design to to keep those quiet. And the Monitor XT20, you know, it's a classic box. Um, so very, 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 very curious to hear what those sound like in the real world. And if we can make that happen, I will keep you guys posted. Um, NED did an update. Uh, swinging back up more high-end again, um, uh, we've seen uh, Cambridge Audio, NAD, a couple other companies do these sort of dedicated boxes with a LED panel on the front and a volume knob. And the idea is that you can stream your audio to it. It powers speakers, um, kind of combines all the features you need. The marketing around the NAD's Masters M10 uh, is the Just Add Speakers revolution, which is actually kind of nice. If you want to hear good music, but you don't necessarily want a giant stack of equipment, which I can understand, aesthetically speaking, uh, these are nice options. Not inexpensive. This is the V2 version of the M10. So uh, it's a 100 watt per channel uh, amplifier, and it uses the Blue OS streaming system, uh, which is compatible with a bunch of other streaming systems. What's uh, new about this is they've got the ability to decode double digital surround sound. For rear speakers, you can use a pair of Blue OS surround-enabled wireless speakers or amplifiers. I'm reading that off of the uh, 
the uh, marketing description, but essentially, uh, you know, you can do wireless rear channels and either with discrete blue OS speakers, which are kind of a similar or competitor to Sonos speakers. Uh, they do not offer a center channel, which I'm kind of bummed about, but you can do one or two subwoofers off of that M10 V2. Kind of curious to see how well the algorithms work on that handle in the Dolby Digital surround sound. We've talked about that before. We'll talk about it again. Uh, I think both of us are big fans of having a sound bar or a dedicated center channel, but it'll be very, very curious to hear how the M10 V2 does that. Man, that's pretty neat. I like that. It has a single yeah. HDMI input also for something like eARC. So yeah. with just your TV and just this, and if you wanted to do, say, a sweet stereo pair uh, <laughs> with a sub output and pre-outs and other things, that that is a nice compact box that I think yeah. would get people who may not need all the bells and whistles of an AVR. That is no. super compelling to me. And it's size. It's pretty and it's relatively svelte and it's fancy and they've been using some very good amplifier modules across a bunch of their lineup um easy to integrate outstanding performance it's also twenty eight hundred dollars true well twenty seven fifty so <laughs> what's on <yeah>. mono price <laughs> let's knock a couple easy zeros off that no. no sadly mono price doesn't do anything like this no um, I, I know you know I, I would like to see something like this for under a thousand dollars i would also like affordable health care and a pony but uh you know nad does some really nice equipment and uh i think that would blend in with damn near any room without irritating anybody yep um we mentioned benq's first 4k ultra short throw home theater projector last week the V7050i. And apparently it is, you know, we've we've been a little overwhelmed with the number of UST announcements in the last year, but apparently it is very, very good. Uh, Chris Majestic took a look at it on his YouTube channel, the V7050i. And it's, a, it's not just another ultra short throw projector. Not at all. I mean, it is, but it's better than a lot of them we've seen. I was moaning and bemoaning the various things I dislike about ultra short throws. And mm -hmm. it took a review from someone like Mr. Majestic over on his YouTube channel. He mentioned its superb brightness and how he was able to run that at medium or low settings in a light controlled room. And the thing that gets me about most of these ultra short throw designs is you are extremely dependent on the quality of that mirror surface in terms of how well it's going to preserve the clarity of the picture from corner right. to corner. Often, even on the thousands of dollars for a UST in some cases, I've seen where the image just has parts of it that aren't as crisp as the others. And you have to go through and make either manual digital corrections at best or maybe something optically. He mentioned how well this was corner to corner in terms of its absolute picture clarity. And that, for me, was just a, uh, a big acknowledgement that, yes, BenQ can make a pretty damn good projector, even with their ultra short throw designs. And it's clearly one of the better ones out there. If you're in that market, though, for an ultra short throw in that three to $4,000 range, that is definitely one to keep an eye on. Uh, Mr. Majestic happens to use as his daily driver the 3050, that you are so familiar with from Epson. <laughs> I have come to appreciate Mr. Majestic's uh, take on projectors and setups and his comparisons, and they're pretty damn good. And so if he's proclaiming the V7050i as something that's worth your consideration, it's worth checking out. And just as a side note, he recently completed a project series video on how to do something like an Ambilight 
style LED strip system around your screen for, it just looks cool. And it was something you could do yourself, I believe using a Raspberry Pi and some other hardware as well. But anyway, if you're into that sort of thing or just home theater projector setups in general, that's a terrific channel to check out. Excellent news, sir. Uh, other news, Monoprice has officially announced the Monolith 13-inch and 16-inch THX Ultra subwoofers. Um, so we mentioned that early review the, of the Monoprice Monolith 13-inch last episode. 13-inch um, THX Ultra with three ports. The 16-inch uh, THX Ultra uh, has four ports you can tune. That's uh, one more, isn't it? Uh, ultra certification for both these. It's 3,000 cubic feet in size with a 10 to 12-foot viewing distance from the screen. Um, CEA 2010 numbers for this look good. We talked about that pretty extensively last week uh, for that 13-inch. Nobody's seen the 16-inch subwoofer yet because it's not shipping until October. That $1,600 13-inch model is going to be shipping, should be shipping now unless they've sold out. The 16-inch is spendy. I've also heard the low-end extension will be even more impressive than that 13-inch THX Ultra, but it's going to cost you about $2,000. My understanding is that these are not going to replace the 12 or 15-inch THX Ultra uh, or the 10-inch Select model in Monoprice's lineup, the Monolith subwoofer lineup. We'll see how that goes over time. Yeah, we'll talk about that more and uh, hope it on some SVS announcements later this year, but I cannot discuss that at this time. Got some viewer questions. We got a really good one from Jude, uh, who posted up on patreon.com slash AVXL. And uh, thank you for being a patron, Jude. We appreciate that. Uh, as <laughs> I am incredibly sympathetic to this question, having spent uh, uh, the better part of a year RVing around the country and dealing with data caps, ridiculous and painful data caps on streaming services. Um, he said, lately there's been a big push from providers to make 4K content available. I'm already up against my one terabyte data cap from Comcast, so I won't be upgrading my stream or gear anytime soon. Do you think this will be a roadblock for many people to upgrade or will there be another solution? I eventually found an unlimited data plan, which was slow uh, compared to say streaming over this box uh was fairly slow like five six seven gigabytes per minute compared to uh, my phone which could typically do 40 or 50 megabits it was also unlike my phone truly unlimited and when we first started that trip my family blew through the device i set up for my family's use in about a week um, right. <laughs> they blew through the cap so when you look at Netflix, um, their internet connect connection speeds, their recommendation, their minimum, right, is a half a megabit per second. Uh, they recommend 1.5 megabits per second. And uh, the minimum for HD is 5 megabits per second. So in theory, SD, H key, and 4K UHD are 3, 5, and 25 megabits per second. So looking at that, a 90-minute HD movie should be about 3.4 gigabytes, and a 90-minute 4K UHD movie, uh, if my data size calculator tool is still doing its math properly, a 90-minute 4K UHD movie would be about 17 gigabytes. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we love physical media, and I, I really fell in love with Redbox last year, especially used uh, Blu-ray discs on Redbox. Especially if you're on a data plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Netflix's recommendations on this, uh, and I'm just going to quote them directly, 
If your internet service provider applies a limit to your bandwidth or data, you can set video quality settings to low or medium to use less data. So low, which is basic video quality, which I think is kind of SD, uh, is up to 0.3 gigabits uh, an hour and medium, or uh, I guess uh, 0.3 gigabits per second. They don't get real specific. Medium, uh, which is standard video quality, is up to 0.7 gigabits. Um, Medium, though, is less than HD, which is under the high best video quality. But SD for them, they're, they're talking about a gigabyte an hour. HD is three gigabytes an hour. And UHD is up to seven gigabytes per hour, which is way less than what those calculate out to if you actually used the bandwidth they recommend for the different video speeds. So hopefully that makes sense. Totally. And remember, too, it's also based on the size of the screen you're looking at. On smaller yeah. screen sizes, you can get away with a much lower video quality and still have a great viewing experience. That's always going to be the case. And the thing is, is at least someone like Netflix has gone through their video and can do quite well with the bit rates they're delivering at, even the lower bit rates, and still make a great looking right. picture. When you get into some streaming services right now, uh, who are still testing the waters and don't quite have everything so well optimized. I'll find that with some of the 4K sports streaming, the live event stuff I've seen will spike upwards of 40 megabit. Right. If you are data capped, you have to be aware of that. And I don't believe we've ever run into our ISP's data cap yet, but uh, I, I should actually go take a look and see what our average monthly download is. And I'm, I'm willing to bet we're well, I have to believe we're over a terabyte a month. It kind of gets crazy, especially if you have a lot of people in the house. But don't poo-poo those medium or low settings. When I'm on a mobile device, that's where you can really cut down the bit rate and still have a decent right. experience. And a lot of mobile providers actually give you like 480p video on your phone, which generally looks fantastic. Uh for you know without knocking away your data cap so put this in perspective right based on netflix's number of seven gigabytes per hour of uhd that's 142 hours of uhd streaming if you use nothing but that for your one terabyte data cap um so one thing is like you can't you know you can't leave netflix in in auto play mode because that'll just don't you know, tell me i, I can't <laughs> Well, you you can. You just may run out of data uh, <laughs> in less than a week. Slows to a crawl. I hate it when that happens. So, see, my this question, is a though, good point, though. We should not be accepting data caps in this day and age for anybody offering a data service. I don't have a data cap. Yeah. I have symmetrical fiber for eighty bucks a month, running you know nine hundred meg down and nine hundred meg up with no cap. That's because I have the luxury of AT and T battling it out with my local cable internet provider over fiber deals. A lot of people don't have that option. Something is that you should check out, Comcast or Xfinity, I guess you would call it now, is you can get an unlimited data option for them. You know, you're just going to spend an extra 30 bucks a month right. on top of that. That's annoying, but it is also less than uh <laughs> that is also less than it used to cost when i uh when i still lived in california so may we have more competition in this in this arena of providing yeah a critical service to uh, everyone at this point taking a look at uh for example there's a chart up on highspeedinternet.com and like AT&T, the monthly data cap is 350 gigabytes to unlimited, RCN, fiber unlimited, Xfinity cable, 
two terabyte is the monthly data cap and the terabyte that's that's larger than it used to be frontier is unlimited google fiber is unlimited CenturyLink's unlimited windstreams unlimited spectrums unlimited okay cox is 1.25 terabytes optimum is unlimited sudden link communications uh depending on the plan you have is 250 gigabytes to unlimited Verizon 5G Home Internet Unlimited. Uh, I could keep reading, but there's only so many stats I can read. And I think the thing you really have to watch out for is the overage fees. Because, for example, on AT&T, if you have a capped plan, you can get hit for 10 bucks for every 50 gigabytes past that. And that can start to get really steep really quickly. Yeah. Um, One of the reasons I switched over to Google Fi for my phone service was that very reason. There was like a max, no matter how crazy I got in any one month, my bill would always stop at a certain point and I would still have unlimited data. So I I appreciate reasonable billing (laughs) for the days and the months I need a, a little extra data in my life. A little extra data. Michael emailed ask at avxl.com. He says, I used an LG Atmos Enable 3.1 soundbar for years due to the not surround-friendly layout of my living room. During that time, the bar performed well when producing regular stereo or 5.1 content, but any time it switched to Atmos, the quiet sounds were too quiet, the loud sounds too loud, and the dialogue just disappeared. It resulted in me constantly tuning the volume up and down. I always chalked it up to LG's not-wonderful soundbars. Recently, I switched to the Vizio Elevate after I found it at a deep discount. This bar is highly rated and recommended, has the rear channel speakers, and even does a transformer move that rotates its front up-firing speakers, and that's to do the Atmos uh, vertical sound dispersion. Still, though, Michael writes, I find that the quiet sounds are too quiet and dialogue just seems to disappear. The Vizio does allow some adjustment of the center channel and a dialogue slider. I've experimented a little with that, but I believe Atmos overrides all user settings. My question is whether the issue is a byproduct of Atmos itself and maybe my poor hearing, trying to use a soundbar with Atmos or something else. Going back to a dedicated speaker setup is on the list of things to do, but it really puts a damper on movies for now. Thanks from a loyal listener. Last week, I was talking about an issue I was having with the Dolby Atmos soundbar where my Roku Ultra was converting everything to Dolby Atmos and then sending it to the soundbar, which in general sounds okay, except for when I ran into a situation with a Dolby surround track. Uh, I think it was a 5.1 Dolby Digital Plus. When it converted that to Dolby Atmos and then sent it to the speakers, I found the dialogue got muddied to all high hell. And it wasn't until I turned off the auto conversion of that audio. That would be one thing I'd check immediately is to make sure that whatever your source device is, run it in pass-through mode direct to your speaker system and then have the speaker process it natively, quote-unquote. One other thing to check, of course, is the dynamic range compression feature available on your speaker setup. It just might be that with it enabled all the time, you will have a more listenable experience with things slightly as dynamic, more clear in terms of especially dialogue and the low sounds not being too low or the the loud sounds not being too loud that's just a quick easy fix to try also i find a lot of these sound bars enable something called loudness by default mm-hmm. and there's usually a toggle switch for that it's good just to check all of those settings and try them on and off and see if that can make a difference right off the bat and avoid any additional like sound processing Maybe it could be a vocal enhancement. Maybe it could be a surround enhancement. Just make sure it's running natively right into that product and then not being converted in any odd way. 
Ideally, it would be compatible with whatever the native format is, be it an Atmos track from, say, Netflix, or your Dolby Digital tracks from something like even YouTube, and just have it process it natively. Uh, I find sometimes any kind of auto-conversion, if the soundbar even offers a feature like that, or your source device, uh, make sure that it's disabled at least once to, to give yourself a sanity check in terms of how things sound. It's interesting to look at uh, one of the things that Ratings has been doing is listing a group of soundbars that deliver the best dialogue. Or, oh, you know, how useful. This came out on That's July awesome. 30th. The six best soundbars for dialogue summer 2021. And they flat out state, quote, some soundbars make dialogue clearer and easier to understand while others can make voices sound more muddy and cluttered. So how do you know what's the best soundbar for voice clarity? You'll need something with a well-balanced stereo frequency response and having a dialogue enhancement feature can help. Sometimes Uh, turning up the subwoofer too much or adding too much bass can really make it more difficult to hear dialogue. And that's one thing I find with any of these dialogue enhancement features or a product Mm -hmm. that has good dialogue presentation is generally they do the mids really well, the mids and the highs in particular, as far as the frequency response goes. They actually gave the Vizio Elevate a high score on the center channel. If all else fails too, and you've been playing with a lot of settings, I keep saying when all else fails, and if you have been, (laughs) and if you have been playing with all of the settings, reset the speaker product back to defaults and have everything right. just, you know, start fresh. Especially if it's uh, if it's something where it's, you know, refurbished or an open box sale, things can get kind of squirrely in there. Without a doubt. I would double check that because they, they were pretty happy with its performance. In fact, it's one of the better rated sound bars they have in terms of delivering uh, center channel performance. So Vizio yeah, is not to yeah. be messed with in the uh, sound bar category. They know what they're doing for the money. <laughs> they have been doing good work. Yeah, I would also say there's some soundbars that seem to come with elevated uh, uh, overhead uh, settings from the factory. So it's certainly worth, you know, if you can control the individual center channel and turn that up and maybe turn down some of the other channels, that can make a huge difference. I feel like I'm going to be playing around with Atmos and soundbars whether I like it or not in the near future. (laughs) I judge a lot of speaker products by that default setup and it should not be doing anything to take away from, you know, being able to hear the full range of audio that is available on all these beautiful formats we have access to through streaming or disc or what have you. So there's no excuse, none. I need to talk to Roku about what the hell they're doing with this auto convert of everything to Dolby Atmos. Sometimes no bueno. (laughs) Maybe next time. Uh, maybe next time. Ooh, Speaking we, of next time. We did just add an Apple TV to the house, though. So I'm getting that set up right now. That's what I'm working on. <laughs> All right. So next week, Robert's going to talk about his Apple TV experience, which should be highly amusing since I've spent most of my adult life, it seems like, with an Apple TV. At least most of my married life with an Apple TV. I'm going to talk about the Harman Curve and those uh, affordable headphones. We got a great question from Justin, who's searching for a shop amp. For a set of speakers, you know, he doesn't want to spend all the money and all the money is, you know, when you get to a dedicated stereo amplifier, it's amazing how fast the money racks up. Heck yeah. You're looking for one of those. 
I had somebody uh, ping me about TVs, too. They wanted uh, more of a comparison between, we always recommend TCL TVs in general uh, across their product line. They have good value, good performance. Vizio is another one of those companies that has terrific value and performance. And I'm going to be digging into that a little bit next week as well. There are terrific options from that company. And I, I, (laughs) I cannot ignore them. No. We will not ignore them. We'll do our best to ignore nothing. We'll do our best to pay attention to everything. Uh, a bunch more announcements coming up next week. Uh, also, I'm going to be hearing from some of the companies that were supposed to be at CD, but were not. So we'll keep you posted on that one. And again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. Your contributions, your monthly contributions actually make this uh, possible for us to do. So thank you to our patrons. We truly appreciate you. Yeah, we do. With that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.